Huckabee, one of America's great leaders, Timothy Keller. Kelly Ball pleads for a stop to political harassment and meet a mini superhero to the homeless. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Huckabee. Oh. What a great audience we've got out here. And did you know what? This is the beginning of our second season. We have been doing this show for one full year. Episode number one of season number two. And I couldn't be prouder of the audience that are packing this theater here in Hendersonville, Tennessee, to share the excitement with us. Okay, now you might think that I'd be angry at the media, Senate Democrats, and the far left George Soros-funded leftists for their petulant tantrums about the nomination process for Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. But you would be wrong. The biased media, the pink hat-wearing resistance, and the congressional Democrats, especially those on the Senate Judiciary Committee, have done something, well, I wasn't sure could be done. They have awakened and shaken people across America to realize how important their vote really is in November. I mean, until a few days ago, there was somewhat of a lethargy among conservatives, independents, and Republicans, and most political observers were predicting a blue wave that would give control of the House and Senate to the Democrats. Well, not anymore. The vile and vicious actions toward Judge Kavanaugh and his family, and the utterly disingenuous game-playing to delay the decision by demanding more information, only to ignore it when received, has surely shown fair-minded citizens all across the political spectrum that having Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Dianne Feinstein, and Maxine Waters in charge of the legislative branch would be disastrous. So, let's be clear. This was never about the actual qualifications of Judge Kavanaugh or of his judicial temperament or what he did or didn't do when he was in high school or whether he threw ice at someone when he was in college. It was because of the fear that he might be a swing vote to change the evil ruling of 1973 that said it's okay to kill a baby in its mother's womb, even up to the very moment of birth. Folks, no nation on earth, not even France, allows such barbaric procedures. And there isn't even a clear indication that such a case would appear before the court again or that Judge Kavanaugh would rule to overturn Roe v. Wade. And even if it were overturned, it does not end abortion. It just leaves the decision to regulate it with the states instead of the federal government. We've been witnessing no less than a hysterical, childish tantrum being thrown with shrill screaming replacing any semblance of thoughtful debate and discussion. Now, when my grandchildren, who are all seven years old or younger, pitch a hissy fit to get their way, they go to time out. <laughs> Come election day, I think we need to put some politicians in time out. <laughs> and this I know, we certainly shouldn't elevate them to leadership in our government. 
The smear campaign against the judge and his family was not about protecting women. Dianne Feinstein and her colleagues actually exploited the woman who begged for confidentiality, but instead was forced to endure being publicly exposed for things that she admitted she couldn't remember as to when, where, who, or how. It's not just Judge Kavanaugh's life that's never going to be the same. Dr. Ford's won't be either. And it's been a national disgrace that should never happen again. And by the way, the best way to make sure it doesn't is for there to be some consequences for the behavior of those who shredded our constitutional principles of innocent until proven guilty, the ones about reasonable doubt, due process, and the ability to face one's accuser. This became no longer an issue of saving a Supreme Court nominee, but rather saving our constitutional republic. And step one is to make sure that the likes of Schumer, Pelosi, Feinstein, and Waters don't get their hands on the steering wheel of our government. Well, it's no news that civil political discourse is an endangered species. Name-calling and harassment of politicians in public have become socially acceptable, even encouraged by some senators. Much worse, threats of violence are thrown around like a tennis racket during a pro-tennis match. Now, while some people may think this only affects political targets, the truth is their families are deeply affected as well. My next guest wrote a compelling letter to Senator Cory Booker. Oh, you know him as Spartacus. <laughs> and she asked him to stop inciting threatening public harassment. We normally visit, as you know, with elected and appointed officials. But I think you need to hear from those who didn't seek the spotlight, but who end up in it anyway. My next guest notes how threats of violence have not just affected her husband, Senator Rand Paul, but her whole family as well. Here by way of satellite is the author of that powerful letter, Kelly Paul. Kelly, it is such a joy to have you here. You wrote a very powerful letter to Senator Cory Booker. What was really going on in your mind? Why did you write that letter? Well, earlier in the day, Rand had called me from D.C. Um, I was home in Kentucky by myself, and he told me some very frightening news, and that was that our home address and his personal cell phone had been um, released onto the Internet. Uh, as part of this whole doxing thing, someone had, you know, leaked the Senate directory, which is only given to senators, and our personal home address was leaked. And so, you know, I immediately felt very vulnerable, very alone and afraid. But I was preparing actually to come to D.C. Uh, for a criminal justice reform um, event because that is an issue that Rand has worked on since he's been elected to the U.S. Senate. He's been working on criminal justice reform bills and he's partnered with Cory Booker, with Senator Kamala Harris, and others in a bipartisan way. And it just made me feel really sad. And so I thought I would send it to Cory because we do respect him and they work together. And I, I understand now Cory, has, his office has reached out to ours, but we do have to be careful about language, especially in light of the things that Maxine Waters and others have said, and what happened to Ted and Heidi Cruz. There are many unstable people out there who literally are trying to get in your face, prevent you from moving forward, screaming vitriol. When people start uh, 
seeking you out in public places. Uh, you mentioned Ted and Heidi Cruz. It happened to uh, DHS Secretary uh, Kirsten Nelson. It's happened to Mitch McConnell and his wife. It happened to my daughter, for heaven's sake, where people yes, yes. Uh, get in their face. And th this is not how it's supposed to work. You also described the pain of being the wife of a U.S. senator who was brutally, savagely attacked from behind while he was in his own yard. Six broken ribs, three displaced, uh, pneumonia twice. Um, he was extremely, extremely injured in that attack. And I don't, I think it, it, it has been very emotional for me to go through that, not only watching Rand struggle to even breathe for close to six weeks and be in so much pain, but then to have people in the media who now claim that they're advocating for victims actually ridicule him and laugh. And I just found that incredibly hurtful and painful. You mentioned in the letter that you now sleep with a gun beside your bed. I mean, it, it, it has come to that, I think, for many people that they fear that it's, it's not that there would be some political opponent that would do something, but there are some unstable people who would be prodded into it. And we saw it at the congressional baseball practice where Steve Scalise almost lost his life because of a deranged yes. gunman. The moment that I heard about the baseball shooting, I was actually in my house, had just woken up because I'm on central time. And I had a neighbor, one of my best friends from around the corner, banging on my front door to let me know that Rand was okay. He did not have his cell phone with him. And because when he escaped from the field, of course, his phone was in the dugout. And she didn't want me to hear about it on the news. So you, you live in a sort of surreal world where you hear these things on the news. Um, I do worry about Rand going back and forth to D.C. I got a, um, an email from uh, Senator Perdue's wife, Bonnie, telling me that she and Senator Perdue had been surrounded by four people at the airport who basically harassed them all the way to their car. This is just frightening and completely beyond the pale. Well, it truly is. Uh, if you could just have Cory Booker in front of you, I, I think you, your letter probably said it very well. What would you love for him to say back to you? Well, I think what I would want to hear from him is that that wasn't his intention. And I believe in my heart that that, that really wasn't. We've heard, I haven't heard directly from him, but his office has reached out. And I would say back to him, I accept that. I want both sides to continue to work together. I do accept that. But I do think we all have to be very careful in this environment with walk, really being very careful about how we use our words. I'm just so frightened that something terrible is going to happen to someone. I don't care who it is. Uh, you know, just in the, in the force of all of this um, anger and, and emotion. Well, Kelly, you have done, uh, done all of us a favor by reminding us that it's not just the elected official who's in the spotlight, but it's the spouses, it's the children, it's the uh, extended family that also uh, has to endure quite a bit to, uh, to be on the political stage. Thank you very, very much for joining us and uh, being so open and candid with us tonight. Thank Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Well, I'm sure that many of you follow Kelly's husband, Senator Rand Paul, but let me encourage you to keep up with Kelly as well on Facebook and Twitter at Kelly Ashby Paul.
Well, it was just 12 months ago we set out to relaunch The Huckabee Show, bigger and better than ever, right from the heartland of America in Nashville, Tennessee. And what do you know? This show is the start of season two. So how are we doing so far? Huh? I say, let's take a little whirlwind trip back over our first year and see some of the great people and moments that made it very special. We have completed one year of shows. It seems like we just got started, and frankly, we did. I tell you, that was so much fun watching that. I might start watching that show. I think it really looks interesting. Okay, I hope that montage spurred a few good memories for you as much as it did for all of us who put this show together. And the good news is the best is yet to come. And it's all coming in season two. Hey, Keith, why don't you give them a few examples of the fun that we've got lined up for these folks? I would love to do that, Governor. We've got best-selling author Tim Keller and Huck superhero Austin Piran, political commentator David Limbaugh, and the amazing David and Danya perform all tonight on Huckabee. Well, the host ain't much on this show, but I'll tell you, we got a great band with Trey Corley and the Music City Connection. They're worth watching. Well, my next guest is a pioneer of the new urban Christian movement. He's the founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan and Redeemer City to City, a group that's launched more than 300 new churches all over the world. He's a New York Times bestselling author, and he's here to discuss his latest work called The Prodigal Prophet. It's a unique perspective on the Old Testament character of Jonah. Please welcome Dr. Timothy Keller. Dr. Keller, truly an honor to have you with us. You've written a new book. It's all about the prophet Jonah called The Prodigal Prophet. Yep. This is a guy that seems like he's more afraid of being successful than he is of failing. Well, he, uh, <clears throat> yes, he is afraid of being successful because he doesn't like the people God has sent him to. And because he's uh, uh, either afraid of them turning toward God and God relenting from his uh, threat to, to judge them, he doesn't want that to happen. And therefore, yes, he is actually more afraid of uh, success than failure. Or put it another way, for him, he would see success as failure. And that's the reason why he responds the way he does. 
Jonah has been one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament precisely because he did what God wanted him to do, but he didn't really want to do it. But he did get the job done. Right. What is the parallel for yeah. us today? Basically, Jonah went to the city and preached the city, but didn't love the city. And that wasn't good enough for God because at the very end, he says to Jonah, uh, you know, how can you not love a city with 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? So he's actually telling us that uh, just to preach the word and to tell people what's true and not have love in your heart uh, doesn't work. And God is not satisfied with that. And actually, 1 Corinthians 13 says that too. You know, it seems like that there is an application uh, for every pastor that, that would ever get in the pulpit that it's not only to have the right words, the right message, but it's also to carry it out with the right spirit and the same spirit that God would intend that redemptive message. Francis Schaeffer used mm. to say, a uh, Christian minister used to say, if you preach judgment without tears, uh, you, you just, you don't have Jesus' spirit. Mm. Because when Jesus looked at, uh, uh, at Jerusalem, and he, know that he knew at the time that this was a city that was going to uh, rise up and, and, uh, and crush him. But he looks at Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, if only you knew the things that pertain to your peace, but now they're hid from your eyes. I, I would like to take you under my wings the way a mother hen takes her chicks under her wings. It's amazing, the compassion, even though he's preaching judgment. He's saying, uh, you're going to be judged, but he's doing it with compassion. And uh, in some, some people have said, uh, I think Luther said that judgment is God's strange work, that God does judge because he's a righteous God. Uh, he does not enjoy judging people. He will do it. And we're not supposed to enjoy condemning people. And so that's one of the lessons of Jonah, yes. I think it's a lot like when a parent says, uh, this is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. I don't enjoy this when the discipline takes place. The kid never believes it, but it's really true. Right. Uh, and as yeah. we become parents, we, we know it's true. Nobody yeah. enjoys uh, applying discipline. If they do, there's something really sick and evil about them. I would say most parents, very few parents, enjoy disciplining their children. Uh, but I, I, I do think I'm afraid there's too many preachers and Christians who do enjoy condemning people. Oh, I think you're right, and I think that's one of the great tragedies of, uh, of the modern-day church. One of the applications that I drew from, uh, from the book was that there is a, a, an inherent danger that we would want to keep our congregations just like us, and we would be afraid that right. people might come in of a different color or a different culture. Yeah. Uh, when Jesus Christ is asked, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Jesus gives us a picture of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan uh, risks his life because it was a dangerous road to stop on. And he gives practical material help to someone who is racially and religiously different. Someone of a different race, different religion. And that's the person Jesus points to when someone says, what does it mean to love my neighbor? Jonah is, you might say, the, the anti-Good Samaritan. He's the opposite because uh, God asks him to go to people who are racially and religiously different, and he doesn't want to go. And at the end, he only goes begrudgingly. And it's clear that the book is trying to tell us that this is wrong, because all through the book, whenever Jonah is brought into a relationship with the pagans, he, doesn't, uh, he despises so the pagan sailors in chapter 1, uh, the pagan Ninevites in chapter 3. Every time he's brought into close contact with them, the author of the book, makes the, uh, shows us the pagans are more admirable. They act more admir admirably. They, they show more humility. Uh, they show more graciousness, which to me is a way of saying, uh, 
that yes, Jonah is being called on the carpet by the author of the book for his attitude toward people of other races. By the way, it also shows us that uh, what the New Testament says is right, and that is that we're all equally lost and we all equally need grace. Religious people as well as irreligious people, everybody needs the grace of God. It may be one of the most off-putting things that uh, we ever reject as believers is a sense of elitism or uh, better-than-you-ism. Uh, I think you certainly speak to that as you uh, discuss the prophet Jonah. Uh, your congregation has been incredibly effective. I know you've uh, kind of backed away from the, the week-to-week pulpiteer responsibilities, yeah. but to go into Manhattan and have one of the most effective churches in America where people says nobody in Manhattan is interested in the gospel, you've proven them wrong. Well, I would say yes. When we, when we first came, my wife and I and my children came 30 years ago almost, there was uh, plenty of uh, predictions of failure. And actually, I, I wasn't sure either that it would ever fly. Uh, I think it's, the, it's obvious that the gospel message uh, can connect with anybody. I think that's what we proved. Uh, you do have to make sure that you state the gospel in a way that's completely faithful to the scriptures, but it's also in the language of the people you're trying to reach and also connects to their particular areas of sin and need. Uh, you know, in other words, the gospel is always bad news and good news. It's always telling people about their sin, how they're trying to save themselves, and then showing them that the thing they're looking for in the wrong places can only be found in Christ. But you have to be able to get their attention by showing them their particular forms of sin and showing them the particular things they're looking for that are fulfilled in Christ. So uh, I actually do think that it was wrong for me and others to believe that, well, the people in Manhattan will never accept the gospel. And by the way, of course, the majority of people still don't accept the gospel, but there were a lot of people, a lot more people than anybody thought who would respond if it was uh, preached in a way that connected to their, to their lives and to their hearts. Well, you've certainly uh, been able to do that. We are delighted to have you here. Thank you for joining us, and uh, I hope it's a bestseller and that people will read it and take oh. heed to its message. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been my honor. Thank you. Well, Dr. Timothy Keller's new book, The Prodigal Prophet, Jonah and the Mystery of God's Mercy, it's a fascinating book about Jonah, the struggle with defiance and disobedience, and the reward of compassion and equality as well. It's available right now at bookstores everywhere as well as online at timothykeller.com. All right, Keith, you didn't get swallowed by the big fish, so that means you're still here and can tell us what's around the corner. Oh, that sounds like a whale of a story, Mike. Well, coming up, we've got a pint-sized superhero helping the homeless. Then find out how millennials are learning to be adults and discover new stories you may have missed. Stay tuned for more Huckabee. I've joined Franklin Graham to make a difference in the lives of Hurricane Florence flood victims, and I hope you will too. Right now, your call or gift by way of the Samaritan's Purse website is going to help provide people and equipment for the cleanup of family homes that were heavily damaged by wind, water, and mud. You'll also help give needed rebuilding materials for the repairs, as well as supplies for the daily life of so many displaced people. Let's show our fellow Americans in the Carolinas what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. So please, Make the most generous gift that's possible today for you. And God bless you for caring. Well, back here at home, over half a million people are homeless on any given night. 
And while there are services to assist the homeless across the country, there's one special young man who's seeking to show love through what he presents in his very special supercharged hands. And that's why he is this week's Huck's Hero. Legend says he put the fast in fast food, and scientists have argued that he contains the heart of a lion. He also has the power to put a smile on every face he comes in contact with. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. It's President Austin down here. By day, Austin P. Ryan looks like the average four-year-old. But about once a week, an astounding transformation occurs. He's a superhero with a mission to change the world. My superpower is to feed the homeless and make them smile. Don't forget to show love. Thank you. You're welcome. Don't forget to show love. My son told me that he wanted to give up his toys that I bought him every Friday to go feed the homeless. It's just the right thing to do. When I grow up, I want to be president of the United States of America. And my two jobs are feeding the homeless and chasing the bad guys out of school. I don't have a weakness, and Superman ain't got nothing on me. A little rain can't stop love, can it? No. Because love is what? Undefeated. That's right. You're welcome. My name's Don't Kyle, forget man. to show love. That's so awesome, dude. Thank you so much. Austin will be eligible to run for president in the 2052 election. Until then, have hope, be kind, and... Don't forget to show love. How can you not love that kid? What a wonderful Huck's hero. I'm so proud that we had him on the show this week. And I hope you'll show young Austin some love by visiting his webpage at presidentaustin.org. I love it. I mean, he's already running for president, for heaven's sakes. I'm going to talk to him. I, I don't think he understands what he's getting into. He, he just needs to give sandwiches out. It's much, much better. Also, you can follow his multi-city tour of love and service on social media. Go to President P. Ryan. That's right, President P. Ryan. All right, my next guest may be known most for political commentary, but he has just written his fourth book on the Christian faith. It's called Jesus is Risen, Paul and the Early Church. It's an action-packed tale of joy and suffering, of shipwrecks, murder plots, countless obstacles faced by those who are spreading the word of Christ to the ancient world. Please welcome attorney, columnist, best-selling author, and good friend, David Limbaugh. David, great having you here. Appreciate it. You have, uh, you've written a number of books, seven bestsellers in yes. the New York Times list. This one, I'm sure, is destined to, uh, to be on there. But this is a little, a little different. It's the story of the Apostle Paul and the early church. I mean, in the day when politics is just dominating everything, what caused you to say, I'm, I'm going over here and I'm going to talk about the faith and those early Christians? This book is about... Uh, the the history of the New Testament, the church, Acts and six of Paul's 13 epistles. I wanted to give 
get a sense of the history so people would get inside the mind of Paul as he was experiencing these things and Peter and the other apostles and the adversities they face, which are similar, by the way, to the adversities we face. And then Paul's deeply intimate personal letters to the churches to correct them and bring them back to the fold when they're being taught false gospel. And interestingly, although Paul probably knew he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, little did he know that these letters would become New Testament scripture that would benefit literally billions of people down through the ages, including us. One of the things I think is most striking about the book is that you do make the application. Because a lot of people who read the Bible, they say, that's great, but that's 2,000 years ago. It has nothing to do with us today. You draw the parallel that there are lessons from the first century that we need to be learning today. What are some of those lessons? Well, for one thing, the Christian worldview teaches that human nature doesn't change. We're fallen people. We are sinners. We can't save ourselves. The law is God's perfect law, but it's not, it doesn't help to save us. We can only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And when we place our faith in Christ, His righteousness, His perfect righteousness is imputed to us. And then the Holy Spirit indwells us and we can begin to combat sin on a daily basis and begin being righteous in fact and holier and, and more sanctified. But so that, that's the same today as it was yesterday. But also facing the churches in those days were the false teachers. The, the Corinth was a hotbed of sexual immorality and, and uh, false teaching and idolatry. You know, the God, love guide, goddess Aphrodite. So Paul's writing these letters, these people, don't listen to these secular pagans and the things they're trying to do to you. I gave you the real gospel. Don't let it be diluted. Today in our church, we have, we have these same kind of tensions, the fa false gospels, false teachers. I, I think some of our churches, in an effort to, to bring people in, conform to the culture rather than having the culture conform to the church. Your book has been endorsed by a number of people, including somebody uh, that everybody knows, your brother, Rush yes. Limbaugh. Yep. Um, he had to endorse it. I mean, he's your brother. Absolutely. I had to say it was a good yeah, book. Absolutely. But I, I want to hear something about the family growing up. Your family is a long line of lawyers. I think your grandfather, your father, I mean, it's, yes. it's like the whole clan. So yep. it was almost predestined that you were going to be a lawyer. Yes. Uh, my grandfather was a lawyer. He practiced till he was 103, died wow. when he was 104. He was universally respected. He really was. He was a huh. saint, unlike me and the rest of us. <laughs> My dad was a lawyer. My uncle was a federal judge. His son, my cousin, is a lawyer. It's disgusting, isn't it? I always wanted to be a lawyer. I wasn't going to say that, but yes, it is disgusting. <laughs> and I always wanted to be a lawyer. Rush was smarter. He knew he could make more money elsewhere, and he did. Um, we've talked about some of the applications of the Apostle Paul's time. Um, but there is a world in which we're living now that seems to be increasingly secular, moving away from just biblical principles upon which this country was founded. What's the key to getting back to where people respect that there is a God, that he has universal laws, whether we like them or not, whether we even believe as believers or not, these laws of God, they're real. I think the first thing is to quit being so feckless and cowardly about the truth. For, uh, believe, declare that there is a truth. If you believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, which he said he is, then he is. We've got to stand up and fight for what we believe in and quit being 
the kind of Christians that say we need to be passive, all we need to do is pray. God put us here for a purpose. We have a duty to fight for this culture. Our kids' freedom and well-being and possibly eternal destiny depends on us standing up. We can be winsome. We don't have to fight as dirty as the left, but we do have to be as intense as they are and as relentless in fighting. In what a great, great message, and that's why I love this book. I hope people will get it. Jesus is Risen. The book is available at bookstores everywhere, but you can download a free chapter from this book, and you can read all the latest news commentaries that David has at davidlimbaugh.com. Follow him on Twitter, at David Limbaugh. Of course, that would be right. <laughs> all right, Keith, I know you've never been shipwrecked, and that's why you're standing over there telling us what's next. Absolutely. Next news that will make you laugh on In Case You Missed It. Then quick change artist David and Donya perform. And later, Mike's final thoughts in The Wrap on Huckabee. Well, this fall, what's better than the leaves changing? Well, Seeing our show live, for one thing, that's even better. And be sure to visit Huckabee Ticks, that's T-I-X, HuckabeeTicks.tv, and get in on the fun. We look forward to seeing you right here in Music City and coming to our beautiful theater. So I hope we're going to be seeing you in our studio audience very soon. From a college banning applause to pumpkin spice items for men, We've got the stories that'll make you want to clap out loud on the segment that we call In Case You Missed It. Alrighty, from our God Save the Queen's Sanity file, the University of Manchester in the UK is doing away with clapping at student events and has replaced clapping with jazz hands. <laughs> Why? because they believe that the sound of clapping scares some of the fragile students at their esteemed university. <laughs> the motion to silence was authored by Liberation and Access Officer Sarah Khan from the school's student union. What a job title, Liberation and Access Officer. <laughs> now the union points out the decision is to honor people who suffer from anxiety disorder. So whooping and cheering is no longer encouraged either. Now, it's obvious that these kids would never be able to attend an SEC football game. <laughs> Heck, they couldn't handle a Little League game. A spokesman for the, excuse me, a spokesperson for the student union told journalists, the motion was passed to encourage British Sign Language clapping, which is jazz hands, but not at all meetings, just democratic events where it's a political event and part of the student's union democrat decision-making process. <laughs> She added that there are no penalties for clapping at those events, but I decided I should try to finish this story in my best golf voice. I imagine the Queen of England might respond this way. <laughs> Audience, would you join me right now as we give our jazz hands? Don't we feel better? Some weird people in this world, I'm telling you now. Well, Kyle Mullinder and Tayo Masuda are GoPro content creators. Yes, that is actually a job now. And they were taking video in kayaks off the coast of New Zealand when a fur seal surfaced and smacked Mullinder right in the face with a big octopus that it had in its mouth. 
I'll bet that's a sentence nobody's ever said before. Well, Twitter erupted with jokes about being sucker punched and getting the seal of disapproval. <laughs> and even asking if they will get a lawyer and sue she. So what was this shellacking with a salivat all about? Was the seal one of those Octifa protesters? <laughs> no, Mullinder said he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. No kidding. Well, at least now when someone accuses Judge Kavanaugh of throwing an octopus in his face 35 years ago, you'll know where they got the idea. And from our Taming of the Shoe file, an Italian shoe company sparked protests by marketing a line of shoes that look like ugly, cheap, beat-up sneakers held together with duct tape. The cost for these shoes? $530 a pair. I mean, I guess they really do believe that duct tape can fix anything. Critics accuse perfectly named Golden Goose shoes of glorifying poverty. Nah. I mean, it's more like exploiting stupidity. But they're hardly alone. The Balenciaga Design House is offering a skirt that looks like a car's floor mat, and it's just 2,000 bucks. I mean, you can't get floor mats that look like a skirt, right? What's the fashion world coming to? And in other news, the House of Huckabee has come out with a line of dirty clothes and smelly sneakers that look like grandkids stuff, and you can get that for only $1 million. Please call me if you're interested. I might even give you an introductory discount. Finally tonight, my wife and every other woman may be going wild over pumpkin spice lattes, AKA PSLs, being back at Starbucks. But fellas, I got big news. It's time for the leaves to change and your motor oil to change too. Pumpkin spice 10W40 is now available. You can't make this stuff up. Man, I can't wait for that cinnamon and nutmeg smell coming out of my tailpipe, can you? <laughs> PSOCs are in the air. And guys, if you don't happen to be handy working on your car, don't you worry. Oscar Mayer has a way for you to get in on the pumpkin action this fall when you make your lunch. Nothing like a PSOMB sandwich on a cool day. Somebody has lost their mind, no doubt about it. Well, another week's unique news is in the history books, so be thankful that we read the news so you don't have to. And if you want a twice daily dose of real good news, analysis, and some humor just to keep you sane, Please subscribe to my free email newsletter at MikeHuckabee.com. And while you're there, sign up to follow me on Facebook. And then only if you don't take things too seriously, follow me on Twitter at GovMikeHuckabee. Well, my next guest have entertained everyone from the Queen of England, who I'm sure gave jazz applause, to rock stars like Katy Perry and Rod Stewart. I want you to welcome David and Danya and their amazing art of quick change.
David and Danya, I'm going to tell you, this is amazing. I have no idea how you did that. But I You're not supposed to. You know what? I, I got to be honest with you, Danya. I wish that you could teach my wife how to change clothes that fast when we're getting ready to go somewhere. Every man here is wanting. Every man needs this. Absolutely. How did this act even come together? It's a long story. We both came from a background of entertainment. My father was a musician. My wife came from the Moscow Circus in Russia originally, and uh, she came over to uh, perform with the Big Apple Circus in New York City. Hmm. And uh, I was the MC, and we met, and it started with a little and progressed into what you're, what you're seeing now. Uh, Danya, I just need to clear up that there has been no Russian collusion between you <laughs> and me uh, yes. and this show whatsoever. I don't want to get a call from uh, don't want to get a call from Bob Mueller <laughs> saying that I've been colluding with the Russians. But the collusion that you guys put together is an incredible thing. You do a lot of NBA work with the National Basketball Association. We do. We are one of the official acts of uh, NBA basketball. In between that and collegiate events and uh, venues like Royal Caribbean Cruise Line, we we're doing several hundred shows a year. Yeah, just crazy. Yeah. You're out of breath, man. I am a little bit, yeah. I mean, this is a pretty high-energy <laughs> act, and it's, it's a lot of fun for us to watch. I mean, I, I always am amazed when I see things that are, to me, beyond the scope of my ability to understand how you did it. And I'm standing up here pretty close to you on stage, and I have no idea. Well, No uh, idea at all. I guess we did it right. Yeah, you did. <laughs> but have you, ever, have you ever had a moment where it didn't work? Uh, we've been on so many shows, and they ask us that an awful lot. Yeah. We've had little bits of errors here and there that we would know something about that the audience would, would uh, never know. But uh, thank God, no, we've never had a major. <laughs> see, see, major my great mistake. fear was I would, I would be in that moment, and uh, somehow the clothes wouldn't change, and I'd be standing there in Fruit of the Loom or something like that. And I'm thinking, <laughs> that could be as Popeye well, would say, embarrassing. Thing too, and thanks for reminding me. Yeah, of there you go. <laughs> How many shows a year do you guys do? Hundreds. Hundreds of shows. Yeah, we're on the road basically 11 months out of the year. Pretty much so. Well, it's absolutely phenomenal. We're so happy to have you here. We're it excited. is a joy to be able to see this incredible entertainment and to learn more about David and Danya and to book their amazing talents for your next event. Go to their website, costumechange.com. That's costumechange.com. Keith, these guys change costumes more than Democrats change their mind on why they don't want Brett Kavanaugh to be on the Supreme Court. But I think we ought to check in on some of the other changes that we have coming up right here on our show. Well, I'm solid on this. Coming up, millennial Josh Burnett is out to teach his peers how to survive in life. And Mike's got some important thoughts on Iran and the United Nations on the rent. More Huckabee is on the way. Millennials are one of the highest educated generations ever. And while they hold degrees in high numbers, they are facing a serious need for some practical life skills, like how to land a job, handle a bank account, and obtain their own housing and transportation, just for starters. A few weeks back, I sat down to talk with Josh Burnett, a millennial himself, and he's also the co-author of a wonderful book. It's called Adulting 101. Josh, do you think that millennials are missing the whole idea of just how to live? 
I think that there is a large disconnect between what they're learning at home and at school and the resources that they need to successfully engage in adulthood. And honestly, that was the premise of Adulting 101 and why we wanted to write it. It's to equip students for life after school. Now, you saw this as an employer. You were hiring a lot of young people to work in your Chick-fil-A restaurant. And, and what were they bringing to the job that you said, you know, these kids might need a little bit of assistance in some fundamentals? Absolutely. So everything from the actual job interview itself and the way in which students would interact with the people they were interviewing with to once we've even employed them, how they engaged in the workplace. And then Adulting 101 is a compilation of so many of the conversations that I had with the students over the last seven years. I've had hundreds of high school and college age students that would sit down and many of them would ask, how do I buy a car? A lot of tactical life skills that were not taught either at home or at school. Where's the breakdown? Is it because so many kids are growing up with maybe broken homes and the parents just don't have the time or think about what these kids need? I think it starts in the home. The, the home is where everything begins and due to a lot of broken homes, I think that a lot of students are missing out on that. And then schools are not teaching students basic life skills that they need. They're teaching them algebra or trigonometry, but not budgeting or financial literacy. What was the biggest shock that you have had in dealing with millennials and other younger people when it comes to what they don't know? They, they expect everything to be done for, for them to some degree. So not all millennials yeah. by any means, um, but we've had numerous students where it's either it's two types of parenting methods. You either have a helicopter parent that wants to do it on behalf of the student, or you have the absentee parent that will have no engagement with the student. And so this book is written to help kind of bridge some of the divides and to give the student the opportunity to learn these skills on their own. Is this book written primarily for the millennial or for the parents of the millennials? And it's really intended for the millennial. We cover topics from ranging from budgeting and buying a car to time management. For so many students that get into the workforce, this is the first time they have unstructured time. Huh. So we, we are trying to help them. How do you maximize your opportunities each and every day? Do young people have any sense that everything that they do now, what they post on social media, uh, the manner in which they interact with their current employer, will have a big effect, not only on getting in or out of a school, but in every job they will ever have for the rest of their life. Do they get that at all? I, I think that some of them do. Some of the more mature ones do, but oftentimes they don't realize that the wake that they're leaving behind each and every day. They impact and engage with employers, with peers, and I don't think they really realize how important that is and how much they're learning and growing as a result of it. Josh and Peter Hardesty's book, Adulting 101, is available online at Amazon and at his website, joshburnett.com. I've got a few millennials in my life who might be getting a copy for their next birthday. What about you? Don't go away, folks. Coming up, Mike has found a way to make the United Nations a happy place for Americans. It's all in the wrap. Huckabee's back in 60 seconds. Our forefathers sacrificed everything to secure the promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm pretty sure they did not say, but make sure the United Nations approves. 
But I believe I've got a better idea of how we should deal with the UN in a segment that we call The Wrap. This week at the United Nations, the UN ordered the United States to lift certain Iran sanctions. The UN International Court actually ordered the United States of America to ease up on the number one state sponsor of terrorism in the world. My first reaction was, what globalist goober thinks it can tell a sovereign nation like the US what it has to do? And there are a couple of responses that I hope President Trump and Secretary of State Pompeo will give to the UN. First, tell the UN to put their order where the sun don't shine. And secondly, I think it's about time to jackhammer the UN building off Turtle Bay in New York and float the thing out into the East River and invite any nation who is sucker enough to take it to come get it and tow it home. We've been funding about 25% of the total budget for years, and for that contribution, we get disrespected and yelled at by a bunch of pipsqueak nations who trample human rights, are run by corrupt criminals that would make the mafia mob bosses look like a bunch of Sunday school teachers, and who contribute virtually nothing to the upkeep of the United Nations. The UN has become a bad joke, and for its kangaroo court to order us to do anything, Hey, that's the last straw. And with straws being banned all over America, <laughs> we ought to give them six months to find a new home. We should just give people directions to Disney's Epcot. That's where members would have to smile and treat Americans right since they pay for it. But I still think we need to tell them to put their order where the sun don't shine. And that is a wrap. Well, our thanks to everyone tonight for helping us to get season two off to a great start. I hope you'll join us next week. We've got Michael Savage, actor Nick Searcy, singer Stephanie Owens, Dr. Linda Nintel, and comedian Michael Jr. They're all here and much more. Until then, thanks for joining us, getting our season off to a great start. Have a great weekend. Good night and God bless everyone.